Well, they say you cannot judge a book by its cover. In the case of the book of Numbers, you can't judge it by its title either. Uh, as we've talked about, the, uh, this book of the Bible that is commonly called the book of Numbers gets that title uh, from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. That's the Septuagint titles it the book of Numbers. But the Hebrew title that certainly predates the Septuagint, the Hebrew title of this book is In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness. That certainly resonates a lot more with what the book is about and what our experience of life is and why this book is such a critical book for us to understand. The Hebrew word for in the wilderness is Bemidbar. And so Bemidbar is really the accurate title of this book, not about numbers, although we do have the, uh, the census that we start with and another second census later on. But Bemidbar is about God with his people in the wilderness. And certainly that's our experience. Like Israel being delivered out of Exodus, we have been delivered, saved, rescued. And yet we are not yet into the promised land, but we are right now in the wilderness, in the desert, marching towards the promised land. And there is a work that the Lord has to do in us and among us as we uh, have a kingdom work to do uh, as we move together towards the promised land. That we might see all that Uh, From the fourth chapter this morning, let's pray as we go to the Lord uh, by his word and in prayer. Oh Lord, thank you for your word again and for continuing to speak to us. In fact, there is so much that you have revealed. It is overwhelming to consider the whole of your word. There are not enough hours in the day or days in the weeks or weeks in our lifetime to absorb all that you have told us in your word. And so we are glad to devote as much time as possible to hearing your word, to reading it on our own, to hearing it together, uh, to having it proclaimed, to understanding it and applying it in real life. And so we pray that you would take this ancient text and help us to see Christ, that we might see how readily applicable it is to right here, right now, that you would be honored as it is fulfilled in our hearing. To that end, we would pray for your Holy Spirit to do the work that the Spirit can do, which is to bear witness, so that the reading and preaching of your word is received as your word. So also we pray for the preacher who is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Before we get to chapter 4 of Bay Midbar, let's do a quick review of what we've seen so far This book, like every book of the Bible, has a purpose because it's written and compiled for a particular group of people. And in this case, it's written for not the first generation that uh, experienced these things, but for the second generation that was going to go into the promised land to be a book of encouragement uh, as well as conviction. And so the purpose is to call the second generation of Israel, that is the second generation that came out of Egypt, the second generation of Israel, to arms as the holy army of God. We'll talk a lot more about the holy army of God in the weeks to come as we see that really lived out in understanding the spiritual battle that we have. But the outline then of this is that sense of constituting the first army, failures in that march, and then constituting the second army. And what we'll do here is a covenantal interpretation uh, distinct from the dispensationalism that really sees Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and sees this covenant connection throughout the scriptures. So that we would say the Old Testament uh, is the gospel concealed, the New Testament, the gospel revealed. 
such that chapter one is about a census to determine how many men are available in order to fight if and when the country needs to go to war so that they become the holy army of God. We now understand that Christ has won our victory and so he has called us to a spiritual battle. And so we are still a holy army of God and there is a conquering work that our king does in us and through us. We've talked about that in terms of how it is that groups come together and that there are center-focused groups and edge-bounded groups. We like the center-focused groups, which are those groups that get together because there's a common activity or interest that we share together. Uh, and we do those, the clubs that we join, the societies that we are part of, things where we can get to other people who like the same things that we like and want to do the same things that we do. Those are center-focused groups. But there's usually a core group to those and then some people that kind of come in and out. The other side of that is the edge-bounded groups, which are those that have a clearly defined boundary where you're either in that group or you're not because there's there's a way to get in and then there's a way to go out. It's a bit more formal process. So we've talked about how family is that and that family, you're in the family or you're out of the family, but oftentimes family doesn't have much in common together. And the further you go out into your extended family, the less you have in common. And the only reason you get together is because you're family. And you got to figure out how to be family together when you don't have so many things in common. The people of God is this unique grouping in which we are an edge-bounded family, that we are together because we have been called by God. And so we come together as family with a lot of different personalities, a lot of different preferences, and that's oftentimes where disagreements happen within the church. But we're together because we're a church family. And yet at the same time, we are a center-focused group in that we are centrally focused on Jesus Christ. We have all been saved by the same God, by the same work of the Holy Spirit that saved us through the same blood sacrifice of Christ. And so our unity is, uh, is found in Christ. And especially when we have disagreements, we come back together and remember what brings us together centrally on Christ. And as we Focus there, we're able to, uh, to get along on the other things and to bear uh, with one another and not always try to get our way. So all that is especially in chapter 1. Chapter 2 then shows us this uh, great picture of uh, the 12 tribes that are all camped around the tabernacle. The camp around the tabernacle with every person, every family, every clan, every tribe centrally focused on this tabernacle, and more to the point, the one who dwells in that tabernacle, which of course points us to Jesus. Just as Israel was to camp around the tabernacle, it was a foreshadowing of Christ, who is the word that became flesh and tabernacled among us, so that we as the spirit and dwelt new Israel and camp around Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit lives in you? God's spirit tabernacles in us. And as the eternal church, we are being tabernacled together such that we become this temple in which the Lord lives among the church as a witness to the world. And so just as a person could not simply declare that they were an Israelite, but had to join a particular family and clan, and tribe of Israel. So a person can't just simply say, I'm a part of the church. But you join a particular church family, and you become a part of that family with all of its uh, nuances. And we talk about then the New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. The Old Testament Israelites is the Old Testament church. And then chapter 3, which we saw last week, is this 13th tribe of Israel. It's the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Levi that become the priestly tribe. 
Moses and Aaron who wear Levi jeans, right? Uh, and then all the Levites and those that are going to wear the Levi jeans that are the priests for the people of Israel, all of which is a foreshadowing of Christ. And in that, we see that in the history and practice of the Levitical priesthood, that God takes his worship seriously. Coming into God's holy presence is not something to be taken lightly. Still the case today. In fact, the New Testament book of Hebrews says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. One of the jobs of the Levites was to stand guard so that no ordinary layperson, no uh, ordinary Israelite approached the tabernacle on their own. In fact, the end of chapter 1 says that if, uh, if that happened, it might be that the whole Israelite community would experience the wrath of God. And so the appointed Levites were to stand guard and be intercessors between those encamped around the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself. And that whole thing just sounds so strange because for so long, so many have taken a casual approach to God. But we know that we can approach God, but the only way we can do that is through our intercessor, our mediator, the great and final priest, Jesus Christ. The Levites foreshadow this final work. The Levites camped, lived, worked, and stood in a place that if anybody else went, they would die and possibly bring God's wrath on the community. But the Levites were to do that work right there in that holy place, and to do the physically hard work of dismantling, transporting, and reassembling the tabernacle. And that's especially what we're going to see in chapter 4 in a moment. And so we talk about that God takes his worship seriously, but we also remember that serious worship that lacks joy is as much an abomination as joyful worship that lacks any reverence. That any of us can come to the Lord is a gift of God's grace. And it's open to us by Christ, and we rejoice in this full access that we have now to the Holy God. And we remember that as the Levites redeemed the firstborn children of Israel, that being God-focused and Christ-centered at the outset sets the tone for what happens to the rest. That what happens to the firstborn affects how everything else goes on down. That the Levites redeemed the firstborn of the family really meant that they were redeeming all of Israel. And so firstborn animals were sac- offered as sacrifice. Firstborn sons were offered as uh, consecration uh, to God in the sanctuary, and Jesus uh, was consecrated in that way. Jesus as the final firstborn. The book of Revelation that uh, calls us to return to our first love, the Lord that calls us to give a tithe of our first fruits and to come together as we are right now on the first day of the week for worship. We are redeemed by that one Christ, the mediator, the one mediator, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And he didn't just offer himself for an undetermined number of people, but Jesus offered himself particularly for his elect saints. That as the Levites did that on a one-to-one basis, so Christ has done that for us as well. Jesus paid specifically for you. So with all that, let's go to chapter four and see this work of the Levites that comes in uh, four different parts, it's the three different sub-tribes, the three different clans, uh, the sons of Levi. So we're going to read each of those in turn and then kind of a final summation that comes. So listen first at the beginning of chapter 4 and the Kohathites, uh, verses 1 through 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take a census of the Kohathite branch of the Levites, 
by their clans and families. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work in the tent of meeting. This is the work of the Kohathites in the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in, take down the shielding curtain, cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they are to cover this with hides of sea cows, spread a cloth of solid blue over that, and put the poles in place. Over the table of the presence, they are to spread a blue cloth and put on it the plates, dishes, and bowls, and the jars for drink offerings. The bread that is continually there is to remain on it. Over these, they are to spread a scarlet cloth, cover that with hides of sea cows, and put its poles in place. They are to take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand that is for light, together with its lamps, its wick, trimmers, trays, and all its jars for the oil used to supply it. And they are to wrap it and all its accessories in a covering of hides of sea cows and put it on a carrying frame. Over the gold altar, they are to spread a blue cloth and cover that with hides of sea cows and put its poles in place. They are to take all of the articles used for ministering in the sanctuary, wrap them in a blue cloth, cover that with hides of sea cows, and put them on a carrying frame. They are to remove the ashes from the bronze altar and spread a cloth over it. Then they are to place on it all the utensils used for ministering at the altar, including the fire pans, meat forks, shovels, and sprinkling bowls. Over it they are to spread a covering of hides of sea cows and put its poles in place. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying. They must not touch the holy things or they will die. Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, is to have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the regular grain offering, and the anointing oil. He is to be in charge of the entire tabernacle and everything in it, including its holy furnishings and articles. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, See that the Kohathite tribal clans are not cut off from the Levites, so that they may live and not die. When they come near the most holy things, do this for them. Aaron and his sons are to go into the sanctuary and assign to each man his work and what he is to carry. But the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. And you hear all of that and you say, really, that's about Jesus? <laughs> really, that has anything to do with our lives today? It really does. In fact, what's, what's the overarching thing that's happening here? It's talking about moving when the people of God are going to move to the next place. Remember, they're trying to travel from one side of the desert to the other side of the desert. A couple million people who are going to try and go from here to there. How do you get everybody from here to there? And in this case, how do you get the tabernacle there as well? And you're not going to move all at once. You only move a little ways because that's as far as you can go. And then you've got to set up camp again. Now, anybody that's ever been involved in moving, and that's all of us, is exhausted at the thought, Right? I'm looking at college students that are about to head back to school, right? And every semester when you got to move and every new year and you're moving your stuff and it's just exhausting. And moms and dads are like, oh, I got to move all that stuff again. And then in your first years uh, out of college, perhaps uh, maybe even newly married uh, or moving into different apartments, you feel like you're moving every six months and it's just exhausting. I remember I just kept getting rid of stuff because it was so hard to move. When I, when I moved after my first year of uh, seminary before I was married, I could fit everything that I owned in the back of an escort because <laughs> I didn't want to move anymore. 
It was just so hard. I didn't want to have to carry all that stuff. So I just kept getting rid of more and more stuff. And then the longer you stay in any one place, the more you have, right? And so you live in your house for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And eventually you have to move. Man, you got a lot of stuff, right? How do you move all that stuff? This past week was just helping uh, Travis and Marcia Furman, uh, who have moved to Alexandria, Virginia, and helping them move and watching it happen again in real time. Fortunately, they're much more organized than I am. So they had all their uh, stuff in boxes already and had things labeled, even color-coded. It was uh, rather amazing. And then sort of standing there and pointing out, here's what needs to go here. And you got to get all the big stuff into the truck first, and then you got to figure out how to play Tetris in order to get everything to kind of fit in the truck to sort of maximize the space, right? But you also got to make sure that everything gets from here to there without getting broken and scratched and lost, And that's just with the ordinary things that we own. We got these special things that we own as well, and we really don't want to see those things get broken. And so you package those up a little bit more special. You pull out the bubble wrap for that stuff, right? And boxes, and you write fragile all over it and make sure that those are on the top and those get kind of a special place to make sure those are most carefully cared for to get to where they need to go. That's what's happening here. It's it's almost as though the Lord is having a group of people moving a nuclear power plant, right? If you're going to move a nuclear power plant, you've got to be pretty careful when you do that because if you're going to tear everything down and then carry it somewhere and then set it back up, man, something goes wrong and it's going to blow. Here you have the holy things of God, and if mistreated, God's wrath can explode all over the entire community. And so to care for God's most holy things in a most holy way in order that uh, God is revered in all of this. And so we have the Kohathites that are given uh, charge of carrying the most holy artifacts, but they themselves can't pack it up. Did you catch that part? It's actually Aaron and his sons, so the priests... Aaron and his sons, the the priests that actually do the most priestly work, that they are the ones to take down the shielding curtain, lay it over the ark, and to package up the ark itself so that even the Kohathites don't see it or touch it. But then there's poles that go through rings, and so they can carry uh, the most holy things, but they themselves don't actually touch it or look at it. And so it is that only those who are between the ages of 30 and 50 are the ones that will be involved in the moving process. Uh, Those Levites who were older could still be the ones that would stand guard. Uh, There's other duties to be performed. But uh, those men that were the most uh, physically fit uh, and able to take care of these things were those that had that job to do. Um, You don't want to be carrying all this heavy stuff and then, oops, drop the ark. That's not going to go well. And so it's very particular uh, in terms of how this went. So we see a census in chapter 1 of those for military duty. In chapter 3, it was a census of all the Levites in order to do a redeeming work. Here it's a census of those who can do the moving work. Now, in the midst of all this, there's this packaging thing that's really kind of uh, funny um, about the sea cows. Unless you're looking at different versions, nobody knows what this Hebrew word means. It's the Hebrew word uh, takash, which the NIV calls sea cows, the ESV calls goat skin, the King James calls badger skin, the New American Standard calls it porpoise skin, and then the new uh, NIV translation simply calls it durable leather. 
It's because nobody knows what it means, but at the end of the day, it's the, the hide of an animal, and so it's durable leather. That's, that's the sense of that. And so hide of an animal doesn't really matter what kind of an animal it is. The Levites at the time knew what it was. Either way, it's a sturdy but smooth material, and so you wrap these things in leather rather than simply cloth paper towel or bubble wrap or whatever it is we have today. But all of this is also color-coded, and it's kind of hard to see that until you slow down long enough to read it. But in some cases, there is a, a blue cloth or a scarlet cloth or a purple cloth, and then that is covered by that durable leather. And so most of the things as they're traveling along the desert are what you're going to see is the outer coating of this durable leather. There's only one set of items that has a color to it, and that is these most holy things that have a blue cloth that goes over the top of that durable leather. And so as, uh, as the Levites will be walking all of the uh, items of the tabernacle through the wilderness, you could look at them and you would see the blue standing out among everything else, and you would always know where the ark was. You would always know where the most holy things were. And it was that central focus of that sense of that's where God's presence is. To know where the presence of God is at any given moment, you could always look back and say, I see it. I could see it right now. Let me move from there because we've got two more to cover in, in the summation. Uh, but those are the Kohathites. And then we come to the Gershonites, starting at verse 21, a shorter account of this group. The Lord said to Moses, Take a census also of the Gershonites by their families and clans. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come in to serve in the work of the tent of meeting. This is the service of the Gershonite clans as they work and carry burdens. They are to carry the curtains of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. It's covering in the outer covering of hides of sea cows, the curtains for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle and altar, the curtain for the entrance, the ropes and all the equipment used in its service, the Gershonites are to do all that needs to be done with these things. All their service, whether carrying or doing other work, is to be done under the direction of Aaron and his sons. You shall assign to them as their responsibility all they are to carry. This is the service of the Gershonite clans. At the tent of meeting, their duties are to be under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is... Uh, Gershon is the oldest son of Levi, and we would tend to think that the oldest son should get the most honorable job. That would seem to be the natural state of things, but we often find in Scripture that God breaks that pattern, and God is pleased not to choose the oldest, but to choose another to carry out his work. And it shows us again that the Lord is not always going to pick the one that we think he ought to pick even though the people are going to do that. So we are often enamored by uh, big names and celebrities and those who are the larger than life. Go, Oh, let's, let's have him on our team, right? We want to follow that person rather than a person who is smaller, lesser than, who is actually the one that the Lord would choose and who is more faithful and is going to carry out what the Lord desires. And so it is the second son, uh, Koath, that he has the most holy things, and here the oldest son that's going to carry the curtains. Here, you, you carry this. We're going to carry the ark. You carry the curtains. What we see here is that God chooses whom he chooses, but that everyone has a part, and we're going to build towards this, that everyone has a part, and all those parts coming together become important. 
That's the image that we got from our New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians 12. We are the body of Christ, and everyone has a part in it. Not everybody has the part that they want to have. And some, some people want to have a, a larger role, and they want to be a bigger deal. They want to be a hand because the hand really gets recognized. They don't, they don't want to be a toe, right? Sergeant Hulk is the big toe, right? Some of you get that. Um, but when you stub your toe, suddenly you realize how important the toe is. A part of the body that you don't think is that big a deal until it gets sick or has a cancerous growth on it, needs surgery of some kind. And all of a sudden you realize, well, that's a really important part of the body. Suddenly you have something happen to a part of your body you didn't even know existed until you go and the doctor does some sort of an examination, says, hey, this thingy is doing this thing. You go, I didn't even know I had one of those. But suddenly it's really important, isn't it? And in the church, we often have those who do things that we don't even realize need to be done because they simply do them. I talk about uh, back at a church I served that I thought had miraculous gardens because it never had weeds. I couldn't figure out, there was all kinds of gardens around this property and, and they were always just gorgeous. There was never weeds. They always just seemed to look perfect. I had worked there for a year before I ever saw her. Her name was Elva and she just came at various times and this was her service. But she would come and she would weed the gardens and sometimes bring her own dirt in order to kind of uh, uh, landscape it a little bit and keep it spruced up. And she just did this on her own because uh, it was a way in which she could help contribute to the church. When she died, it was suddenly months later, and the grounds and the gardens were all being overrun with weeds, and the deacon said, hey, we're going to have to do something about these gardens. But for generation, they didn't have to do anything with those gardens because Elva took care of it. So as we look around this church, the property itself and the ministry that we do, there are all kinds of things that need to take place. Many of them you're not going to get recognition for. It happens behind the scenes, but they are absolutely vital. There are some duties that carry more weight and exercise more influence. In Spider-Man, Uncle Ben says to Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. But long before Uncle Ben ever said that, Jesus said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from those to whom much has been entrusted, much more will be asked. And so there are people that are big, given big duties that often get at the top of the name charts. And so there is a great deal of responsibility that comes there. But 1 Corinthians 12 and Numbers 4 shows us that we all have a part to play and they're all vital together. And so from the 20 verses of uh, the Kohathites to the nine verses or the eight verses of the Gershonites, we have only four verses for the final tribe, the Merorites, starting at verse 29. Count the Merorites by their clans and families. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work at the tent of meeting. This is their duty as they perform service at the tent of meeting, to carry the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, posts, and bases, as well as the posts of their surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, ropes, all their equipment and everything related to their use. Aside to each man the specific thing he is to carry, this is the service of the Merorite clans as they work at the tent of meeting under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. You carry the ark, you carry the curtains, you carry the tent peg. Tent peg number five. That's your job. You're in charge of tent peg number five. 
got it. But everybody has their role. And what I want to see in here is to see um, a God who is unique, a God who is both transcendent and imminent. Other religions have a transcendent God who is not easily approached, who is distant, uninvolved. Uh, like in Islam, Allah has the high and holy one who does not dwell with his people. Other religions have an imminent God who also is not easily approached, but does get involved in the lives of humans, like the Norse gods, Thor and Odin. They're like human beings, but just stronger. They're certainly not transcendent, and often they are flawed, but just stronger. The God of the Bible is both transcendent and imminent. God is the high and holy one. God overall omniscient and omnipotence. And yet our God is also with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. His ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. And yet we are created in his image. His dwelling place is right in the middle of his people who are encamped around him. And yet there is mystery and danger in approaching him in his holiness. And so in Christ, we see the two aspects come together. The transcendent God who put on human skin, touched by people, and yet he could command the wind and the waves. He commanded the elements of nature, driving out demons and sickness. And so the God who is the God who dwells in the ark, who also cares about the curtains and right down to the tent pegs that are driven into the ground. God is transcendent and imminent. A generation of evangelical Christians have spoken about having a personal relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior, in distinction from Roman Catholicism and other things that presented a purely transcendent and distant God. It was good for us to realize that we can personally uh, be in relationship with the Lord. But with that has come a common attitude that has reduced Jesus to being just like one of us on one of our better days, but maybe just a bit more power. He could be approached anywhere, anytime, without any special preparation or holiness. The hymn that we're going to sing later says, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It's not a bad hymn. We're going to sing it. But to realize the profundity of this relationship, to call Jesus as a friend is not to say he's just like a buddy like every other, other buddy. A Christian radio station in town that their tagline is, We're a friend you can count on. No, you're not. You're a radio station. You can't be a friend. We can, you're a radio station. And if Jesus is just a friend we can count on like a radio station, then he means nothing. But Jesus was rightly accused of being a friend of tax collectors, a friend of sinners. And so we do have a friend in Jesus who takes our prayers to the throne, but he is an imminent who goes to the transcendent. So let me take us to this last section, beginning at verse 34. Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the community counted the Kohathites by their clans and families. All the men from 30 to 50 years of age who came to serve in the work in the tent of meeting, counted by clans, were 2,750. This was the total of those in the Kohathite clans who served in the tent of meeting. Moses and Aaron counted them according to the Lord's command through Moses. The Gershonites were counted by their clans and families. All the men from 30 to 50 years of age who came to serve in the work at the tent of meeting, counted by their clans and families, were 2,630. This was the total of those in the Gershonite clans who served at the tent of meeting. 
Moses and Aaron counted them according to the Lord's command. The Merarites were counted by their clans and families. All the men from 30 to 50 years of age who came to serve in the work, all the tent of meeting, counted by their clans were 3,200. This was the total of those in the Merarite clans. Moses and Aaron counted them according to the Lord's command through Moses. So, Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel counted all the Levites by their clans and families. All the men from 30 to 50 years of age who came to do the work of serving and carrying the tent of meeting numbered 8,580 at the Lord's command through Moses. Each was assigned his work and told what to carry. Thus they were counted as the Lord commanded Moses. It was Aristotle who said, the total is greater than the sum of its parts. Here, there is a sense in which we have the total is more than the sum of its parts. When you get a new puzzle, uh, some of you maybe got a new Lego kit for Christmas, or you get a new toy, a tool, or anything where some assembly is required, it is so much better when it's put together than when it was in pieces, in part because it's finally put together, right? The sum assembly required you just dread those words, but when it's finally assembled and it works, yes. And so here we have all the parts that are in pieces that need to be put together. And it's the Lord who determines the work, the placement, including the places of honor. He gives all the pieces, and then he says, here's how it needs to be assembled together with very specific details. And so from the Levites, we see two basic ministry principles that apply today. First, that it's the God who calls, And second, that God calls different people to different ministries. You know, it's often been said that the Levites were set apart for the sacred duties and the other 12 tribes set apart for the secular duties. And there's a truth to that. The problem is that our word secular has been co-opted to mean something bad. We think of atheist, humanistic, secularism. But the word secular simply distinguishes those things that are not directly related to the church. All work, all Honorable vocations, all honest vocations, serve the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church about serving their earthly masters. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Last week in Sunday school, we listened to four guys talk about how it is that they serve the Lord in their scientific work. The word vocation means calling. Whether you're a student, whether you're an employee, an employer, whether you're a parent, your vocation means calling. We have different callings, and in the church, we refer to the inward call and the outward call, but there's a sense in which it works in and out of the church. An inward call comes from the Lord, giving us a desire and a skill set for a particular type of work. The outward call is the employer who offers you the job, which may be a result of education and training and other requirements. And so there's the inward call and the outward call. In the church, an officer, an elder or deacon, experiences an inward call from the Lord, but seeks the outward call of a church to elect them to the office. And next week, we've got a congregational meeting for elections. And the different callings are for different duties, with different roles and different responsibilities that are determined by the Lord. If someone from the oldest tribe of Reuben, or from Simeon, or Judah, or Benjamin, if they wanted to become a priest, they couldn't, because that was given to the Levites. They say, but look, I've got all these gifts. I, I could really do a good job as a, as a Levitical priest. But you're not a Levite. And that's been given just to the Levites. There wasn't a democratic vote. God calls to the office, and God determines who is eligible. 
In Israel, it was only the Levites and only those between the ages of 30 to 50, more about the age in a couple weeks, that could serve in this way. It didn't matter what gifts you had, what other cultures around you might think of such apparently outdated and repressive restrictions. God's word was to be followed. And we see the danger of what happens when God's word is not followed. And so throughout Israel's history, they continually became lax on God's word. We'll see later, uh, once they get into the land, that the northern kingdom would set up their own mini temples in Dan and Bethel to keep people from going down to Jerusalem. They constructed idols of various kinds, and it became a much more flexible and less restrictive view of worship than the temple in Jerusalem. They offered a more popular way of worshiping that catered to the people. One commentator notes, it was thus all around a kinder, gentler, more inclusive version of the Lord's worship. Yet the prophets that the Lord sent repeatedly denounced these temples as idolatrous abominations. Every subsequent king of the northern kingdom was evaluated on the basis of his attitude to Jeroboam's golden calf idols. In the same way, God has ordained the qualifications for officers in the church, elders and deacons. Many in our society regard them as old-fashioned, unnecessary, restrictive. Many simply cannot understand why the church is unwilling to change their position on things like ordaining women. After all, there's so many gifts among our women. We would say, absolutely. Because we serve a God who is very precise about those who serve him, we apply those things to officers. And yet women ought to serve the fullness of their spiritual gifts. We don't just pat intelligent women on the head and tell them to go to the kitchen to make tea. We want our women to flourish as much as possible, but within the boundaries that God has created. Strangely, church is often assigned to elders and deacons duties that don't even need to be carried out by those who are officers. I told you about the church where I grew up in which the elders were simply committee chairs and the deacons took the offering and polished the brass. Anybody can do those things. And with so many needs in the church, there's no need for anyone to feel unneeded. Churches often talk about the 1090 principle, 10% doing 90% of the work. Someone takes on a task and gets burned out because all the responsibility is suddenly put on their shoulders. I saw a pastor who recently tweeted that they were going to start some leadership training as soon as they found someone with the spiritual gift of folding bulletins. It is good to have men who are called to the office of elder and deacon. But we need people to prepare communion, fold bulletins, usher, paint walls, help in the nursery, greet, clean, care for children, students, seniors, cook a meal, provide transportation, do the things that nobody notices until nobody's doing it. We need missionaries, locally, domestically, and internationally. And we need all of us to be fulfilling our vocational calling that the Lord has given to us. And so what we see in the end is there's an assembly required of the holy things. But more than that, there is the assembly required of the holy people of God. We are the body of Christ, and there is some assembly required. And the Lord is doing it, and will continue to do it as we focus on Christ and fulfill our part of the body. May we do that, and may the truth set us free. Amen.